Let's be seated. So last week, Ben began this most timely of sermon series and explained that biblical justice is distinct from all other forms of justice that we might know because uniquely biblical justice flows from God. What God does and demands we do flows inexorably from who he is. And we find this in our first reading, Deuteronomy 10:17. Let's look at this together. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. God is supreme. And three amplifiers here describe the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. The thes, I think, amplifying the amplification to say that he is supreme and sovereign over all things. These, in fact, are military terms for a superpower of galactic proportions. So if what God does and demands we do flows inexorably from who he is and who he is is a death star, then what we should expect to find next is some display of force, perhaps, that will demonstrate that he is completely operational. (laughs) And yet, in all of the ways that this verse could go on the power of God, isn't it fascinating that next he talks about the goodness of God? The power of God is linked to the justice of God. And God uses all of this perfect power that he has to bring about perfect justice. Verse 17 continues, he is not partial and takes no bribe. Now, partiality and bribery are all about being inconsistent in the application of the law. They're all about being unjust. So when a referee is swayed by the crowd to let the home team get away with things, but penalizes the visiting team for the exact same offense, that is the essence of partiality. And it's born out of the judges' insecurities and fears of the crowd. Fans of the Eurovision Song Contest will know the scandal of certain Eastern countries blindly giving full points to one another in a dodgy deal, even where the singer has not washed for 15 months and instead of singing a song into a microphone is screeching randomly into a rotting leg of lamb. They still get 10 points. Now, Mrs. Fire will tell you that we're all musical. I know a bloke who's not, and yet he's still got 10 points. That's bribery, folks. That's born out of the judge's desire to profit himself. When a certain motor racing team runs an illegal engine, wins seven pole positions in a season, gets caught, and suffers no penalty of points whatsoever. And the judge turns out to be the former principal of that same team. We all smell a toad. Oh, sorry, a a toad. Let me pronounce that name correctly for you. I will not be drawn, however, into whether I think this is partiality, bribery, or both. Certainly not on the internet. You may take a view. I could not possibly comment, but here's the problem. Whenever we see these things, it invokes in us a sense of righteous anger, unjust behavior, injustice. It makes us angry, and we can all see it, and we all hate it. I have noticed that we do tend to be a little bit more lenient when it's our team in the wrong, and 
a little bit more harsh when it's the other guys, but we don't like this stuff when we're neutral, and all forms of human justice ultimately are flawed. All forms of human justice are imperfect because we are. Now, I've deliberately chosen sports to take the heat out of what is an incredibly sensitive subject right now, but Scripture goes there. Scripture starts to talk about those things that make us uncomfortable. Some specific examples now, not exhaustive, but examples of people who disproportionately face injustice, whether it's partiality against them or or bribery by those who are stronger than them, they're all in the same boat. Verse 18, he, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. What they have in common is they own nothing. What they have in common is they are vulnerable. So they do not get partial treatment because they have no power. And they cannot offer a bribe because they have no money. And so what God does, seeing their plight, is gives them special attention and care. Now, I want to make a few subtle points here. They're not inherently more valuable just because they're poor. They're not inherently more holy just because they're weak. They don't get a handicap on the burden of proof to make up for poor legal representation. There's no positive discrimination here to make up for years of neglect. There's no tokenism to improve the optics of the village. Uh, Critically, this verse says nothing at all about whether the judge actually finds for them or not. They might get a fair hearing and still lose, because losing when you're in the wrong is just. So it's not that God says, right, they've had to put up with all this stuff, they've been treated badly for all these years, let's flip that around and have a new gang in charge. It's not a revolution like Robespierre or Lenin or Mao might have brought about, where we chop the heads off the bad guys, put ourselves in charge until we become the bad guys and someone chops off our heads. It's not about revenge, this verse. It's not that form of justice. What happens next? is way better than that, way more powerful than that, way more different than any form of justice we've seen before. What happens is uniquely biblically just, and that is that the vulnerable are noticed. What is the fruit, then, of the attention that these overlooked people suddenly receive? Well, first, their plight becomes understood. Secondly, their problems start to concern us the more we know about them. Thirdly, we get to know them. And fourthly, ultimately, we become them, and they become us. We become one. That's the fruit of all of this attention. Now, at seminary, I served in a church in an area of uh, what we call in the U.S. Section 8 housing. Uh, British people will know it as a council estate, and not being from there... I had some preconceptions. I knew the jokes and I knew the slurs about life on the estate. There was such a high percentage of fatherlessness there that uh, it was known, one of its nicknames was No Man's Land. And that was one of the funny ones. There were far ruder jokes than that, I can tell you. Once I worked there, I started to see that much of what I thought before 
was untrue. I started to realize how ignorant I'd been of all of the facets of life on the estate and the things that people were living with and dealing with that, that had never even entered my head. I realized that most of my opinions were thoroughly ill-informed. There were all these things that had to be dealt with. There was poor transportation, poor access to jobs, poor health care, uh, poor buildings. One lady lived above a, a butcher's shop and, and flies would come in because the windows didn't even shut. It was a difficult place to live. I had prejudged that group of people. I was prejudiced out of ignorance. This is sin. What I learned from that, I actually learned a thing. What I learned from that was that uh, you don't just prejudge people that you don't know and don't understand. And this helped me when I moved here again to a group of people who were different from me. At this time, actually, the group of people that I was to serve, I would say, were, for the most part, far more wealthy than me. But it's the same exact principle. The lesson helped me to see that, that people here in Fox Chapel were dealing with, with things too. It was a lot easier to see what people in this town were struggling with and, and working against because we're all dealing with something. It also made the process of belonging here far quicker than it had been the first time around. As you can see from, from my beautiful trousers, I have now fully enculturated into Fox Chapel. These are my biblical justice trousers. <laughs> I might even be persuaded on a certain day to refer to them as, as piants, if you would like me to do that. Attentiveness, that's what God calls us to. It leads us to understanding, and understanding leads us to love. Leads us to love people who are not like us until we become them and then they become us. Biblical justice is all about love. God expressly commands it in verse 19, love the sojourner. Now, in all of the secular discussion right now, I'm really not hearing very much about love, not this kind of love. I'm not hearing much about biblical justice right now. Here's a logical argument for why we should practice this kind of love. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, not so long ago, you were vulnerable too. We're all in the same boat. We've all been blessed by the same God. It wasn't our own works that got us here. It was a gift of God. And the passage goes on to talk about Egypt and how they're rescued from Egypt by God and, and how they were in slavery and now they've been established and are more numerous than all of the stars. And the point is again stated here that everything we have comes from God. So don't look down on people when everything you have was a gift. All you need is love. World fixed, hurrah, sermon over. Now for a problem. If God is perfect in his power, and he's perfect in his goodness, and he's perfect in his judgment, and what God does flows from who he is, but also what we do flows from who he is, and he calls us to be and to act exactly like him, what if we don't? In case there's any doubt about this, we don't. <laughs> Let's look at Romans chapter 3, shall we? To reveal a little bit more about ourselves. Verses 9 and 10. All, everyone, 
Both Jews and Greeks, various races, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. See, there's no home crowd. There's no partiality. We're all enemies of the judge. He's against us all. Look at verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There's no resource. There's no works. There's no bribe that you can pay the judge to sway his judgment against you. He gave it all to you. So he's not going to be influenced by a little bit back, is he? Verse 22. Kind of bringing these two concepts together. For there is no distinction, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God alone is perfect. God calls us to be like him. We cannot be like him, so we are in trouble. But we don't need to be. Verse 24 introduces another unique facet of biblical justice. We can be justified by his grace as a gift, says verse 24. To be justified is a verdict, very much the language that a judge might use, very much the language of a court. And unlike our legal system where the options are guilty or not guilty, and the best thing that can happen to you after a public and shaming trial is a statement of neutrality, not guilty, don't know whether he did it or not, but we couldn't pin anything on him. Instead of that, what it says is this, to be justified is affirmatively to be found righteous, to be declared morally upright, to be sitting under a verdict of being good. That is to say that the judge looks at you and says about you with perfect authority that you are, legally speaking, every bit as perfect as he is. God, the judge, declares you to be godly. But hang on a minute. If God is holy, and God calls us to be holy, and we are not holy, how can he just look at us and pretend that we are? Surely that makes him every bit as dodgy as we are, every bit as corrupt as we are. Just to turn a blind eye to all of our sin would be to engage in that sin with us. Letting guilty people off enrages every single one of us. Even flawed humans can see that's not right. And it's here that we find another unique aspect of biblical justice. And that is that biblical justice goes hand in hand with biblical grace. Verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The sin is not just ignored. Redemption. This is money language. Someone pays for your freedom. Propitiation. This is cleaning language. Someone takes away your guilt. It's not just ignored. It's not just a, a letting off. And the wonderful thing here is that that someone is Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who pays for and takes away your guilt. And some translations, they really mangle this word propitiate because it's so long and weird and difficult to say that we don't like to say it, and so they say other things like expiate. It's equally weird, but a lot easier to say. It means to wipe away or clean up. 
Uh, but it doesn't do. It's not a good translation. Just because it's easy to say doesn't mean that it's right. Yeah, propitiate actually is a lot more to do with the, the cleaning agent than the thing being cleaned itself. So the other day, a member of my household, let's not say who they were, spilled a red berry smoothie on the rug. And Kat ran in with a cloth to blot it up. And she, of course she did this because the rug is far more valuable than, than the rag. And the rag was ruined, but it didn't matter. We could just throw that away so long as the rug was okay. The, the rag soaked up that red berry smoothie, leaving the rug perfectly clean. And the rag was stained and wrecked and besmirched, and we chucked it out. And that is the essence of propitiation. It is the blotting up and the taking away of a stain at cost to something, but to preserve something worth more. And that is what Jesus Christ thinks about you and does for you. He considers you to be more valuable than himself. And so the justice that we deserve for the sins that we have committed are meted out upon him. And the grace that God wants to give is given to you exclusively through Christ alone. That's why God is described here, Christ is described here as, 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 as the just and the justifier preserving his justice. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin, but also preserving his grace. He provides that freedom and that verdict by taking on your sin for you. And he calls us to live a cruciform life. The essence of biblical justice is the cross. How can you recognize how much sin you've been forgiven and then just ignore the plight of someone who does not know Jesus? Or ignore the suffering of someone who is disadvantaged in some way over you. Anyone who has seen the sheer scale of the love of God and the grace of God will not tolerate injustice. Biblical justice is all about the cross. And the wonderful thing is that all we need to do to receive this grace of God and to bring about justice is to have faith in Jesus Christ, to trust in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed frustrated and sorrowful and ashamed at the injustice in our world. We're culpable, and we know that we'll be held to account. But we thank you, Lord God, that in your grace, you've provided a way to remain just and to justify and so, God, we ask that we would turn our eyes to Jesus Christ. And just as you, in your sovereign power, see the plight of those who are disadvantaged in any way, we pray that you would give that same heart to us. Those who have been forgiven, Lord God, would you enable us to forgive and to work for justice? Thank you, Lord God, for the cross. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.